The Law Report with Tyrone Key. And a very good evening to you from tonight's Law Report program. In the show this evening, we'll be taking a look back at some of the highlights of the show from the past year. This evening, we'll be focusing on the new pension legislation, pensions and divorce, as well as on triple BEE and the new scorecard elements. Well, for years, you've scrimped and saved to put away something every month for your retirement, but then the government announces new legislation on retirement funds will come into effect on the 1st of March 2015. So what do the new regulations mean? Why were they necessary? Will the government be withholding my pension money from me? Do the regulations affect all of my retirement money? Well, to put your mind at rest, I've invited attorney Karen McKenzie to join me this evening, and she's a director at Herald Gee Attorneys and heads up the Pension Law Department. You'll also be taking a look at what happens to your pension fund if you're unfortunate enough to be getting divorced. So I think before we get on to divorce and pension funds, let's just talk a little bit about the impact of these proposed retirement reforms. What exactly are we looking at here? Okay, well... Firstly, some of them are no longer pro- proposed. They've come into law already. That There's a whole raft of amendments that came in with effect from, I think, 28 February this year. And they're quite significant and sweeping changes to the Pension Funds Act and the Income Tax Act. I think that these are largely beneficial for fund members, but there do seem to be some concerns and fears um, that members will members have concerns and fears that they'll be locked into their pension and provident funds with with limited access. So I think in in order to understand what these amendments do and don't do, it's helpful to move back a little bit and look at the broader issues that the longer-term reforms are looking at. And I think perhaps that's what you are Mm. referring to. Um, One has to bear in mind that we... We're in a culture, a very poor savings culture, so there's a a great initiative from Treasury and from government to try and prevent the leakage in pension funds. Now, those typically occur at two stages. Prior to retirement, in other words, if you access your benefits, if you withdraw early from a fund, there can be leakage if you take it out in cash. And then also at retirement, if you don't preserve a portion of that, there's further leakage there. So that's what the general reforms are about. They're about other things too, but let's focus on that for now. Um, let's first deal with what the amendments do not change, and that's access to benefits prior to retirement. Okay, The present position is that a, fe- uh, a member who exits a fund prior to retirement can access the full benefit in cash, and this applies equally to pension funds and provident funds. This hasn't changed. So just to get that clear, because there there's a lot of confusion out there, the preservation situation that has changed with the latest amendments um, has to do with what we call compulsory annuitization. And to explain that term, that just means that when you retire, you need to take a portion of that retirement benefit, in this case two-thirds, and you need to use that to purchase a life pension. That's called annuitization. And the big change here is that whereas that has always been the case in pension funds on retirement, that is now with effect from um, 1 March next year, 2015, that is going to be applied to provident funds as well. But what is an important qualification uh, to this legislation is that it only operates going forward. So in other words, anything that you have in a, in a provident fund up to 28 February 2015 is treated in line with the old legislation. And so if can, someone could take the whole lot out. Take the yeah. whole whack, 100% of that. Together with, let, let's say, for instance, you, you stay in that provident fund and you only retire 10 years from now, you would be entitled to take that amount that it accrued to your uh, benefit up to one, uh, sorry, 28 February next year, together with the growth in real terms, the fund return, 
to your date of retirement that you ta- you're entitled to take as a cash ben- benefit. And the two-thirds rule only applies to the balance that's accrued since then. Okay. That's important to note because people on there's a, a, you know, you hear terrible stories about people rushing to resign from their jobs in order to access their, their provident fund benefits, the fear that they're going to be frozen and locked into those funds, and that's actually not the case. I think it's, it's a pretty good initiative on part of government because <clears throat> we, we have a problem with people retiring and taking out the lump sum, and then in a year or so, it's gone. Exactly. You know that, and, and the trade-off, of course, is that, that um, you know, tax is always a good incentive to shape social engineering, financial engineering. And so what happens is that members get the tax break on the contributions into the, the pension and provident funds. That will also change the you know, they'll align the Provident Fund tax legislation to the Pension Fund one. Um, so you get the tax break on it, and what government is saying in exchange, we want you to use these resources responsibly. So the state obviously has an interest in people preserving those savings for old age, not accessing them early, and on retirement using them for annuity purposes. Because one would imagine that the sort of, you know, the state would, there would be a finite amount of money because, you know, we are getting more and more of us are getting older and, you know, there's going to be more and more of us needing to be paid out well, for pension. Exactly. And, the, I mean, there's just so much money that's going to go you around know, the, here. The private, what we're talking about here really is the private savings industry. We're not mm. talking about the government social grants. That's yes, it's a whole separate the thing. Yes. We're really mm. dealing with the second and third pillars here. But... Um, so that's very much related to what you or your employer have put into the fund. It's basically related to, to your input. But government certainly has an interest in how that is spent over the rest of your lifetime because to the extent that you can't manage that, the state will have to use Yes, you know, it. and as it is a finite amount of money of and course, there's more yeah. of us are getting older yeah. and the state can't keep yeah. on supporting all of us. Well, that's another, that's another initiative that will be coming up, I suspect, in future amendments and that's looking at the retirement age because as mm. you point out, you know, we're looking at a, a sort of pyramid system where you've got less and less people paying into the, the various pension schemes or tax that goes into national savings and more, um, you know, having to support more retirement. So certainly in some of the other Western countries, I think Australia recently, they a huge hue and cry, but they actually raised the retirement age. And that's also something in the future that one might be looking at. I mean, but, but back in the day, I mean, 60 or 65 was, you were really old. You know, you were really, really <laughs> old. Don't say that too no, I'm saying, but that's what, that was the feeling back in the day. And now, that's I right, mean, you yeah. people are working until 70. Absolutely. I mean, it's yeah, not an unheard of thing. It's almost becoming more and more commonplace now. Yes, yes. You know, so I don't think there's anything wrong with that. No, I mean, I, I, I think it's important to just personally to to move that firstly from a funding point of view and, mm. you know all other kinds of social issues but that that is not on the immediate horizon let's say Where, whereas the the issue that i spoke about earlier which is um withdrawals from both pension and provident funds which at the moment you can take in in cash certainly that's on the cards the received wisdom is that probably in the next couple of years the lawmakers are going to introduce legislation that that stops that that preserves that with probably some exceptions, some drawdown rates for unemployment or interim access to it. But that's definitely on the cards in terms of longer-term reforms. And being involved in pension as a pension lawyer, what do you think? What are your personal views on all of this? you think it's a good thing? On preservation? Mm. Oh, absolutely. No, I mean, you know, we, we do have a... Um, as I say, a poor savings culture in this country. There are a lot of reasons for that. You know, it's, it's also 
all very well to talk about saving for the future when we have the kind of unemployment rates that mm. we have. It's, it's, Not you know, that it easy. swings and roundabouts. But um, certainly if you're looking at it from a, a, a retirement and a pension law perspective, of course one would want to, the two things you would want to improve. The first is coverage, that you have more people that are feeding into that pension system. You know, that, you know, compulsory contributions, compulsory employment, provision of pension schemes, etc. And then the second thing is compulsory preservation at a, at a higher level than we presently have. Right. Well, just a reminder, you tuned to SAFM, South Africa's news and information leader. I'm Karen Key, and this is The Law Report. My guest tonight is attorney Karen McKenzie, and she's a director at Herald Gear Attorneys and heads up the Pension Law Department. Right. Let's get on to divorce and pension funds, the rather unfortunate circumstances when somebody's getting divorced. And there are quite a lot of different rules and regulations, depending on how you are married, what happens to your pension fund. Yes, it's true. It's very complex. Um it's a complex system and there's complex legislation there. I think the most important distinction to bear in mind, and, and many divorce orders get shipwrecked on this, is that there are two situations you have to contemplate. The one is um, where one of the spouses is a member of a pension fund and that pension benefit has accrued to that member's spouse prior to the date of divorce. The second situation is where that benefit has not yet accrued and that's that is the situation in which the statutory provisions apply. We'll look at those in more detail. Okay, just so now. by accrued, you mean it's been paid out? Um, it's a little it's, bit it's more than that because you can you can have a benefit that's accrued but hasn't yet been paid out because there's still administrative hoops to go okay. through. But effectively, when you talk about a benefit accruing, you mean that that member, that fund member, has got the right to claim the benefit. And usually, in the context of an occupational fund that will be the termination of employment. So either resignation, dismissal, retrenchment, any of those things will give rise to the right to claim a benefit. If that happens prior to the date or on the date of divorce, um, that benefit has then accrued and you've got to treat it as any other asset in your division of the matrimonial estate. So if you're married in community of property, it goes into that general melting pot, whatever the benefit was that, that accrued. If you married out of community of property, then it will go into the calculation of the accrual claim if it's subject to accrual. The second situation that we deal with now, which is where the statutory provisions come into play, is where somebody is a member of a fund but they haven't yet left service. If it's an occupational fund, they're still employed, so they don't yet have a right to claim that benefit. That benefit hasn't yet matured. Or if you're in a retirement annuity fund, if you're not yet age 55, which is the earliest date that you, you can retire, or you haven't factually yet retired from that fund. Those are unaccrued benefits. And those are the benefits or pension interest that is dealt with in the statutory provisions. And the reason for that is that until that benefit, um, the right to claim it, accrues, you're not sure what the value of it will be. You're not sure when it's going to happen. So the, the legislature had to insert some deeming provisions. So firstly, it put in um, a formula for how you calculate the value of the pension interest, and that's defined differently for a pension fund, a pension or provident fund on the one hand, occupational fund, and a retirement annuity fund. They're different definitions, so one needs to be very alive to what, how you calculate the pension interest. There's also a definition for a preservation fund pension interest. Then secondly, the legislation says um, once you've established what that the amount of that pension interest is, um, when you get divorced, the court may allocate a percentage of that to the non-member spouse. And then finally, the legislation has inserted provisions which allow the pension fund to pay that allocated amount 
directly to the non-member spouse as a cash benefit if he or she chooses, or it can be preserved in an approved pension fund. But effectively, that's just an administrative process, provided you've dotted all the I's and crossed all the T's. And that's where it tends to get a little bit derailed, because people don't refer to pension interest. They talk about the pension fund. They don't understand the the value of it can be very different. If you look at, um, for instance, benefit statements for a retirement annuity fund, which will be showing you growth over the last 10, 20 years, if you take the definition of pension interest, all that is is the contributions into the fund together with simple interest um, over the intervening years. So it, it it doesn't have the advantage of the compounded growth, and it can be substantially less than the actual fund value that the member presently has. So those are things to look out for matrimonial attorneys, people who are getting divorced. Make sure that you, you've got a correct assessment of the value of the pension interest, firstly. Secondly, make sure you know which fund it is correctly, cite the fund correctly, make sure it's a pension fund proper, retirement annuity pension fund, and not an insurance policy because, you know, you can have retirement annuities which are self-standing products, member-owned, they don't fall within this legislation either. Retirement annuities don't fall within that? Retirement annuity funds do, that's when they're fund-owned policies, but this is where a lot of confusion arises, Mm. and, you know, sadly, you can even phone the fund administrators, your financial advisors, and they can also give you the incorrect information. There's a lot of confusion out there, so you really need to drill down and make sure, you know, get the correct citation of the fund, look on the Financial Services Board website, if necessary, try and trace that uh, that fund. You'll usually pick it up from benefit statements. But you really need to know what you're dealing with before you start drafting those provisions in your divorce order because other, otherwise you end up, as is sadly very often the case, with an unenforceable order against the fund. And what happens then? Well, then the parties need to... Uh, go back to court to have it rectified and that's when the wheels usually come <laughs> off because they're no longer in any agreement as to to what they actually meant when this thing was drafted. So, um, you know, the, the the first thing is obviously to try and avoid that, get get your ducks in a row first time around. But um, if if you've missed the boat on that, you then need to be going back to court. There's, um, there's quite an important two judgments out there, recent judgments that deal with it, the Kotzer judgment and the, the Gibson one. Um, and the Gibson one is an interesting one. It's a Western Cape decision because that basically says, look, if, if you end up with a court order that you can't implement, you might well have to, and, you, and the parties aren't in agreement as to what they, how they're meant to divide all those assets, you might have to revisit that entire divorce settlement to, to undo all of that. You know, and the court is going to rely on, on evidence from the parties. So it's really not a situation you want to be in. No, my, my, my theory here is rather just don't even get divorced. It just sounds way too complicated. Yeah, if you have to do it, um, you know, it's, it sounds like you're going to have to have the right people on board helping you with this because it could get very, very sticky. Uh, the one thing I wanted to ask you, I was looking through some information and it says here there's a difference between marriages out of community of property without accrual before the 1st of November 1984 and after November 1984. Mm. Why is there a difference? Well, because that's when the Matrimonial Property Act 88 of 1984 came into force, and that was the act that brought in the whole accrual system. So effectively what this legislation is is drawing a line between people who after that date have voluntarily and knowingly gone into a system without accrual, and those are the only ones that are accepted under, sorry, 
accepted e x c e p t e d um they're the only exceptions to the kind of marriages under the marriage act there are other marriages which we can get to just now which also form subject of this legislation but basically if you're married in community of property this legislation applies if you're married out of community of property prior to 1984 it will apply and if you're married out of community of, of property after 1984 but subject to accrual it will also apply Okay, what about traditional marriages? What do you mean by traditional marriages? Do you mean uh, customary marriages? Customary and marriages, yes. Okay, that that's a um, that could be a whole other program. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's no, that's that's a, a tricky one. The, 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 clearly, the intention of the le- legislation has been to include those with, within this um, envelope of, of statutory pension interest, um, and that's all well and fine when parties to customary marriages go through the formalities of a proper decree of divorce for dissolution of that marriage. Then you then you well into the you see you must remember this legislation also affects the Divorce Act. So the, a lot of the substantive provisions are contained in section seven of the Divorce Act. And that requires that parties that want to use the system, a court allocated percentage interest, must be parties to a divorce. So returning to your um, question about the customary marriages um, there are some cases around there which seem to suggest that um, even with the recognition of Customary Marriages Act, um, parties don't have to register under that. And I think you may still find that there are situations where parties have those marriages dissolved through channels which are not court channels. And in that case, I don't think you can get an allocation of, of pension mm. interest. Um, similarly, well, on a similar note, the Islamic marriages, there was um, there were concerns about that because until the, the most recent amendments now, um, they were not included, specifically included in that. That's now been uh, rectified. But uh, opinion is divided as to how successful that amendment has been because, once again, it, it amended the Pension Funds Act, not the Divorce Act. So... Um, I'm not sure that you actually get a decree of divorce when you go through the Islamic marriages termination routes. So the courts would have to interpret parties to a divorce quite broadly, and I think if they took a purposive view of the legislation, they would probably do that. But it's just something to flag if if you're in an an Islamic marriage or you're an attorney doing a divorce uh, in an Islamic marriage assisting with that. It's something to look to how enforceable is this going to be if if you put that in your in your agreement between the parties. I was actually speaking to somebody a year or so ago who <clears throat> retired and then, but he had got divorced a couple of years prior to his retirement. And so he got divorced and there was the story about the pension fund. But then when he retired, there was also another problem with the interest and the, the tax thing. There was a whole complicated thing when he retired mm-hmm. and the pension then got paid out. And I'm not quite – he was very confused about what was going on because he he remembered that some of it had been paid out to now he's now ex-wife. Okay. But now he's retiring and now there was a whole thing with interest and tax and yeah. it, it seemed to get very complicated at the time of retirement. It could have – you know, it also depends on the financial structure of the fund. If you're in an, a, a defined contribution fund, which is very much like a savings account, whatever you put mm. in plus growth is just kept in a notional account – for your benefit, then it's quite easy to affect that deduction. You you go to the date of divorce and you say, okay, fifty percent was allocated. It can be you can allocate up to hundred percent. By the way, I'm just saying notionally fifty percent. Um, you then take half of that away and you notionally put it in another another account 
or you pay directly after the non-member spouse. If you're in funds that have different financial structures, such as the Retirement Annuity Fund, which is funded by fund policies, or um, the GEPF, the government, the big government fund, which is a defined benefit fund, that accounting becomes a lot more challenging. You're then running notional loan accounts in the case of the defined benefit funds, or you're having to terminate policies, and there could be early surrender um, penalty. Uh, well, let's call them causal event charges in the retirement annuity funds. Um, and the whole accounting process can be a bit nightmarish. I mean, the, the only thing I would advise funds to do, and I certainly have given this advice to the funds where I sit as a trustee, is you need to deal with it now and not five years down the line because you can imagine that retrospective accounting process is going to be 100% more of a nightmare than, than trying to sort it out now. So, I mean, effectively, if you have a, excuse me, a retirement annuity, you could potentially leave it where it is and just, what, know that half is yours and half is mine, or what, what would you do? It's never going to be as simple. Well, look, um, if you want to use the divorce provisions to actually allocate and access those funds and get it paid out, then you've got to go through all the definitions mm. that are there, including the definition of pension interest in a retirement annuity fund, which can be, as I say, substantially less. You can agree, of course, any all parties to divorces are entitled to agree between themselves how they want to split their assets. So another way of doing it might be saying, well, you take the house, I'm going to take the retirement part. There's nothing that, because the legislation is here, there's nothing that um, forces or compels parties to share their pension interest. However, if they can't agree on it and it comes before a court and the court has to make that call, has to make that determination, the court uh, is within its rights to say, I'm allocating 50% of your pension interest to you and effect that transfer. So you could say, well, as long as the, the money works out the same, you can have that and I'll have this. Of course. You yes, don't have to split yes. everything down no, the middle. No. I mean, the best divorces are those that happen by agreement when you mm. go in with a How consent How often paper. do those happen, no, unfortunately? Very oh, no, 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 very often. When I say by agreement, I mean that the parties have got together eyeballed each other across the table with their attorneys there or through a mediator or whatever and they've come to some kind of settlement agreement that divides the the assets of the marriage um, in community or out doesn't matter you then put together a draft settlement agreement which becomes incorporated in the order of court so that is that's the I think the best way to do it because you're not leaving it to the mercy of the court and how that it, it... Well, we spoke about this on the show last week. Yeah. We spoke about mediation and how this is yes. now almost the best way to go, well, if I you can. In, in, in many um, mm. divorces, it's, it's, a, it's a very good start. It can, it's, you know, of course, litigation tends to polarise. So mediation is obviously offered, um, aimed at a, a more constructive um, facilitation of those issues. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you, I, I think that... You can, you, well, I know you can certainly do it by agreement, and that's, from the party's point of view, the, the most certain outcome. Um, but what does happen is that even in those consent papers, because of the complexity of the legislation, um, they're not correctly drafted, and the courts uh, just grant the orders without understanding that they're, in some circumstances, not correct. And that's when you end up in going back to court to have to rectify it. Yeah, I was reading some information that said here one should never rush into dividing up pension and or retirement funds in a divorce settlement. It frequently happens in divorce cases that pension fund administrators reject settlement agreements on the basis that the, the clauses dealing with a pension interest payout mm. to a non-member spouse are drafted incorrectly. Yeah, that's and that's going to cause yeah. like a whole drama. Yeah. No, I mean, that, that's that's absolutely correct. And in fact, it's it, 
it might be the pension administrator that notifies you, but it's the pension fund itself which is refusing to pay out, and quite correctly, because um, Section 37A of the of the Pension Funds Act prohibits pension funds for, from making any deductions from benefits which are not sanctioned by the legislation. So if you haven't formulated your divorce order correctly, that is now an impermissible deduction from the benefit, and the pension fund may not pay it out. It may still be you know, a private claim from one spouse against another, but you can't get the, you can't rope the pension fund in as an agent for payment, and that's where the assets are sitting. Most people don't have the resources just to pay out this for 1.5 million rand as, as a cash thing, which is why you want the pension fund to do it. Um, that's why it's really important to get those orders correctly framed. So what do we do now in the case of a divorce? I mean, not every divorce attorney is going to be sort of au fait with all these different pension rules, or are they? Um, probably not, but that's why there have been a number of drives. I know I'm, I sit on the uh, Pension Lawyers Association, and we sent out a, a draft some years ago. In fact, we probably need to tweak it now, but which set out templates. We sent it to all the law societies and for circulation amongst matrimonial lawyers, um, just setting out templates for divorce orders, um, particulars of claim in your summons, consent papers, etc. I've just recently done a presentation to the Law Society here in Cape Town to their, uh, all their family law practitioners dealing with all these provisions in the in the legislation. So it is about um, getting that message out. I mean, it's been around a long time, but it, it, there's there are continual amendments. I mean, as I say, there's been an amendment in February mm. again this year. So it, I think the main thing, and that's why programs like this are important, just to create an awareness um, around this issue, just to to be aware that there are landmines lurking around there and that you need to be very careful when drafting these clauses that you get it correct. So if somebody is going through a divorce and yeah. they have got a, an attorney working on the divorce, should they, I would imagine, it could feel quite free to say to them, you know, is this something that you are very knowledgeable about or should we possibly consult somebody else just I in this one area of the idea. divorce yes. you know. especially if they're significant assets you must mm. remember in, in any divorce well in most divorces um, these days the two significant assets are usually your house your property the, the home and then the, the pension benefit and can, both spouses can have pension benefits so that's one thing you, you usually want to get right um, and certainly for Divorces where you've got a lot of money at stake, you know, you've got benefits which are in in the millions of rands, you want to make sure you have a belts and braces approach. So, yeah, it, it is just about awareness of, um, or, or, you know, the matrimonial pr practitioners can go to the various websites, make sure that they're conversant with those provisions. There are a lot of templates out there, but I think the main thing is just being alive to the fact that this can get off the rails pretty quickly. So it's the case of almost taking responsibility for now for our own divorce if we're going to be doing it. Just make quite sure that the attorney you're dealing with knows about all these, as you call them, landmines when it, comes idea, to, yeah. when it comes to your assets because otherwise you yeah. could end up with a huge problem in the end. Absolutely, yeah. So rather just sort it out at the beginning. Of course. Right. I wanted to ask you, what is the clean break principle? What is that? Okay, the clean break principle, I must be honest, I prefer to the term the immediate access principle because otherwise it's confusing historically when the, the this um, legislation came in which allowed um, courts to order an allocation of pension interest that came in in 1989 for the first time and at that stage until the later amendments starting from 2007 um, those that pension interest had to stay in the fund 
until such time as the member either retired or exited the fund. Okay. So you could have the allocation of pension interest, let's say, in 1992, but if the member only left in 2002, the non-member spouse had to wait 10 years to get that payment. So what happened in the t 2007 and 2008 amendments is that uh, the, the lawmakers said, okay, we recognize, firstly, it's it's inequitable usually for the non-member spouse because she's, she didn't have any growth over that period. There were no provisions for interest. Um, and secondly, it's just easier, a little bit like the clean break principle mm. in divorce, carve it up now, sort it out, and off you go. So, and it, this is really an, an exception to the principle that we were talking about at the beginning of the program, which is this drive towards preservation. You can see there's huge leakage from from divorce benefits. Um, I've heard stories of people getting divorced just to access the, the pension assets. Um, there are also cases where... <laughs> that's, no, a bit, that's a bit dicey, though. <laughs> yeah, and, and they ha uh, spouses have side agreements. You know, they, they'll take 100% of the pension assets and then they'll divide the other assets another way. So th this has been a huge exception to the, the as I say, the general um, initiative of Treasury and government to, to keep assets in pension funds. Is that going to change, do you think? Well, you know, it survived three later uh, amendments, so uh, I'm not sure. I, it makes I sense want to, to make a call it on makes sense to, to relook at that. I think. I think there'd be a lot of public pressure to to keep it where mm. it is. You know, um, divorces are, are painful enough processes, and you know, yeah. financially difficult for everyone. So. Maybe that's just worse. an accommodation in, yeah. in, in this one. Exactly. Even though we actually explained this, there still does seem to be this fear that the money is all of a sudden no, going to disappear. No, I know. That's why I wanted to address or deal with those mm. issues specifically on the members yeah. because um, there's a lot of confusion out there. And, um, you know, you especially find that also in the in the industrial funds, the bargaining council mm. space, the trade union funds, there are a lot of fears around what's happening to my assets. Is the state going to confiscate it? There's also, I think, quite honestly, I think there's a bit of a mix up between this legislation and what the state's talking about, the National Savings Fund, which has yes, to yeah. So that, that, that is a whole other dimension. We've basically got 30 seconds now. Let's put okay. their minds at rest for 30. We've got 30 seconds to tell sure. them. So if you've got a pension fund, nothing basically is changing. Nothing is changing. Okay. Pension fund in the narrow sense of the word, nothing, nothing has changed. It's exactly as it used to be. One, uh, you can access the full amount on cash if you leave prior to retirement. If you leave after retirement, it's one-third in cash, um, two-thirds is an annuity. Provident funds is now uh, same story as pension funds prior to retirement, full cash benefit. Um, on retirement, sorry, that's if you if you withdraw. On retirement, um, it's going to be the same as, provident, as pension funds from next year, one-third in cash, two-thirds as an annuity. But the amount that has been contributed up until March next year is ring-fenced, and you can take that entire amount out in cash. But no one's taking all your money, and it's no perfectly safe. No one's taking all your money. Right. Except well, for the receiver of revenue. Well, we won't even go down there because that's just depressing. <laughs> the Law Report with Karen Key. After the country's first democratic elections in 1994, the government devised various policies which are aimed at reducing the effects that the previous government's unequal policies had on the masses. In particular, in the formal business environment, it was necessary that formal steps be taken to help the previously disadvantaged people to positively contribute and participate in the economy.
On the 11th of October 2013, the Minister of Trade and Industry, Dr. Rob Davies, gazetted the revised broad-based Black Economic Empowerment, triple BEE, codes. The new codes will replace the existing BEE codes of good practice when they come into operation. My guest this evening is attorney Nicolene Skuman-Low, a director of Skuman Chaka Attorneys, Conveyances and Notaries Public. And I started off asking her about the implementation of the new law. So this is already in place now, but it's not coming into effect until next year. Yes, it's been passed through Parliament, it's law, um, for lack of a better phrase. And um, in, in April 2015, the codes will become compulsory. So up until then, or as we say, the transitional period leading up into um, April 2015, um, businesses effectively have a choice whether or not to apply the old codes to their scoring or the new codes. Um, and then after April 2015, um, there would be no choice from then uh, going onwards. So what is the big difference? What is changing? Well, essentially, if you look at the elements, and, and just for ease of reference to the listeners, I'll, I'll mention the old codes uh, or the elements of those codes and then compare them to the new ones very briefly. The old codes are basically centered around the elements of ownership, management, employment equity, skills development, enterprise development, preferential procurement, and corporate social investment. Those were your seven scorecard elements. They have now been reduced to five, uh, being ownership, management employment, and employment equity become one element and will be known as management and uh, control. Then skills development has its own dedicated element still. Uh, enterprise and supplier development is a fusion or a, a merger of enterprise development and preferential procurement. And then corporate social event, uh, investment remains the same. So essentially the seven have now been reduced to five with a merger of, of one uh, of, of four elements essentially into two. I've just had a question here. It says SMMEs only have to score on four of the seven. How many now? Um, SMMEs, um, and let, let's, let's speak scorecard language for a minute, there are three levels of compliance. Your first level of compliance is your exempt micro-enterprises, or as we know it in industry, the EMEs. They are currently uh, turnover-based between 0 and 5 million. Then you've got your QSEs, or your qualified small enterprises, which are currently rated between 5 and 30 million in turnover and then your full compliance level and that's obviously in terms of old scorecard language 30 and above now let's quickly look at new scorecard language just for a minute emes same same applies but the threshold has increased so 0 to 10 million qses 10 to 50 million and then full compliance so when you're talking about partial compliance in terms of selecting elements albeit four in terms of the old regulations or three in terms of the new regulations. Um, so they would only now have to comply with three elements as opposed to four previously. No, um, my one, let me just count you one, two, three, four again. Oh, four my, again. Okay. My apologies. Um, but there, there's, there's a few exceptions to the rule and we'll get to that in a minute. But your QSEs are the ones that can select specific elements for compliance purposes. And they are in that the bracket of 5 to 30 or 10 to 50 million in turnover. So previously you could select four of the elements in any of your choosing. Now the big um, change is that ownership is non-negotiable. Non it has to be 
one of your selected elements of compliance and then you can elect whether you comply with skills development or enterprise and supply development, one of the two. So you have an election between those two, but one of those must be, must be present and ownership must be present in your compliance. Okay, there's another one here. Question says the scope of the bracket is dependent on the industry sector. Yes. Um, what we have been talking about, let me just clarify that for, for the listeners, is the generic scorecard. In other words, the scorecard that applies to all industries that do not have their own specific scorecard. So construction, as an example, has their own specific scorecard with different, um, different ratings, with different measurements. So it's quite important that, that when you do consult with someone to get advice on, on both the strategy and the legal compliance of this, um, that they that they understand your industry and that they understand which scorecard would apply in that instance. I'm getting seriously confused. <laughs> and I'm sure the people listening out there are thinking, hang on, wait, let me make some notes. But all the information is on the Facebook page. Which yes. one? Um, both, are, from from a firm perspective, we are running all the updates on both the pages, the Skuman Shaka um, Facebook page, as well as the Triple BEE Symposium page. Okay, so they go onto Facebook, look for Triple BEE Symposium. Yes. And, and all that it. information is on there. Yes. Okay. We've got some nice articles on there that we've written across um, the couple, last couple of months in anticipation of the new codes that have now become effective or recently become e effective. Now, I was doing some research before we came. I had to do that because otherwise I would have been totally confused. Mm -hmm. And there are a little, few contentious issues in these codes. What? Definitely. Um, well, th the most topical, I think, from, from a practical perspective uh, is most certainly the, the aspect of ownership being non-negotiable as a selection element, or let's, let's refer to it as a selection element for the QSEs. Um, Specifically because everyone has been getting used to being able to select their elements um, without any regulation as to which elements should enjoy preference. Um, so that's that's been very contentious. And uh, from the legislator's perspective, when, when these codes were debated at parliamentary level before enactment, it was quite clear from private industry that, that it wasn't perceived as a very positive step. Um, of course, there's always two sides to a story, and the legislator's perspective was that it, it's been around for, for 10 years, uh, going on a little more, and um, we, we need to be at a point where we have ownership structures in place already. And the reality is many businesses actually don't. So for, for many businesses, this is a very um, contentious point and, and often a very difficult one to to really get their heads around in terms of what strategies are available. And we often hear people then say things like, um, I'm being forced into a partnership or, or something like that, a very negative connotation. Whilst there are various uh, ways and means of, of structuring it from a strategic perspective to be compliant and to be compliant on a basis that would actually facilitate a long-term ownership strategy. So, um, for example, uh, your employee share schemes have shown a lot of success when implemented at the right stage and with the right employees and with the right management structures in place in terms of managing that trust. Um, it's usually set up in a form of a trust and the, the shareholding is then uh, housed therein until 
the the shareholding is fully paid where after it's then the share certificates would then be released to to the beneficiaries of the trust. There's been a number of very successful cases along those mm. lines, in, especially in the wine industry. Yes. A lot of the wine farms here in the Western Cape have done that, and it seems to be working really well. Yes, definitely, when it when it goes coupled with a, with a strategy. Um, I think one cannot blanket any solution in terms of sure. these structures, but uh, many of them have maintained a trust structure and never released those share certificates to the individuals who are to benefit from it. Um, and if it's thought out with, with good purpose and everyone understands and has an aligned expectation, then, then those work really well. Simultaneously, those that have the purpose of paying up the shares so that it's low risk for the business involved in terms of the ownership transfer um, would then would then also facilitate further involvement of those specific employees through the other management structures and maybe even being in the position to putting cash down on the table to to then buy more shares and actually go through skills development programs, um, director training and all sorts of programs to eventually end up being a very useful member of, of any of the boards. So if those are structured in a way to, to have a long-term purpose in mind, they work really, really well. Similarly, there are other structures um, involving uh, NPCs as we now know them, the old Section 21 companies that become shareholders within the business and that business is then able to regulate exactly who benefit from the, the monies uh, in terms of dividends and profits that get declared um, and who actually benefits from it. So there's a number of structures without handpicking someone um, and saying let's let's be partners in a business and and not really planning or doing your due diligence or any of those considerations so um, it's not a case of looking necessarily for for that partner but they could very well similarly they've been very very good success stories by by looking for partnerships for joint ventures there are many options not just the the case of of giving ownership away well, you see that's what the whole point is you see people hear that you know you've got you now it's compulsory there's this ownership thing mm. and everyone's like oh i'm losing my business now yeah but you have to look it's more than just that employment equity is another one yeah employment equity has now been merged with management control and um to to my understanding the the major concern there and previously we've also seen in in with our clients that in, in terms of being compliant under the old codes, under employment equity, you had very clear measurables in terms of divisions in management structure. So your your junior level, your, your mid-range and, and your senior management levels. And depending on how you've placed your people in terms of them being from the designated groups and, and for just for record purposes um, and for context for our listeners, black is in the broad sense of the word. So in a nutshell, anything other than, than a white person or someone who is not um, a South African national. So broadly speaking, there are exceptions to the rule and all these things. Um, but broadly speaking, even even our Chinese or Asian nationals that, that are South African citizens also fall under these codes. And uh, that took a few few years to resolve and to clarify, but it's now very much part of the law. So we had these divisions in the employment equity um, uh, element, and it made it relatively easy to measure. If you had a proper employment equity plan in place, then it was relatively easy for you to measure those points and to see where 
there were any concerns in, in compliance and you could then um, resolve that. But with it merging with management control, which was essentially a measurement of decision-making on a much higher board level, on a strategic decision-making level within the business, um, those are very two, dif two very different concepts, but they've now been merged into one element. And uh, some of, of our verification agents are very concerned as to how we will actually measure um, if it's if compliance isn't at what we think it should be, um, the measurables are going to become much harder in that space. So employment equity is def definitely one of one of the elements of concern. So how does this change for business? I mean, what are they going to? I mean, at this point in time, um, the new codes, uh, as with the ownership element and um, the fact that it's compulsory, and the fact that if many businesses do not do not want to see other solutions or change their way of thinking, then um, then we, we sit at a point where if you don't comply with that compulsory element as a QSE, you automatically fall one level. So if you score high, let's say, level level four, which is which is a pretty average but good score, you would now, without doing anything wrong per se and without necessarily doing anything differently in a negative way, you would automatically fall a level and you'll become a level five or as the the scoring of the different levels have also changed, the, the weighting allocation. So actually, in fact, you'll be falling to a level six and not just a level five. And not just because you haven't complied with ownership, but because the ratings have, have changed across the, the levels, which is also a um, very contentious issue because without doing anything negative or changing or refusing to comply, those who are actually compliant at a, an acceptable level will now fall two levels if you don't comply with ownership. And if you do comply with ownership, you'll still fall another level. So let's say you retain your level four status by implementing employee um, ownership structures because the weighting of the different levels have changed, you may find yourself being a level four. So it's really crucial for us to, to unpack these things and at the moment, the, the law is not drafted clearly enough for us to say exactly what your challenges will be. We are all speculating. We need to be very honest about that. None of this has been tested in a court of law. Nothing. No one has taken any concerns to a court. Um, in fact, very few have been scored in terms of the new codes. Um, in fact, I don't know of any businesses that have voluntarily scored themselves under the new codes. Is gender coming into this new code? Yes, and um, along with the labor legislation that, that is uh, going to change in, in terms of gender equality and gender equality considerations, you, you, will, um, you will have, um, you've always had additional points for, for male-female distinction. Um, although, again, it's also under the, on the horizon and a possibility from some of, of the interested parties that there will be no distinction. So there's a lot of uncertainty going around with, with these new codes, but um, the, the, main, the main contentious point from what we've experienced is definitely the ownership and then the changing of the, the different levels um, and their point scoring. So what would have been a level four in terms of, of your point scoring would now be the equivalent of a level five because all these weightings have changed across the levels. I was reading something that I maybe shouldn't be trawling around on the internet, but it says 
the thing I was reading says, and I'm quoting, it says, one of the more serious errors in the code is the calculation of employment equity. The amended codes no longer use percentages of black as defined and adjustment for gender, but now refer to population groups. Mm. So now they've split. It's not just black and white. It's mm. now black and white and everything in between is all separate now. Yes. Um, as I say, um, the what we understand, the, the modus operandi for that was to align with the new labor laws in terms of gender equality, that there shouldn't be any distinction between uh, male and female. And under the old codes, you got, um, for lack of a better phrase, more, point for, more points for females from designated groups than what you got for, for males, uh, their male equivalents. So it's, it's what the... We assume that the, the the thoughts behind it was really to align with those thoughts, but um, that is a contentious issue. And how that will affect um, specific regions of our country that that have different population groups uh, residing there and and the points uh, not being not being measured in terms of the broad based principle um, would definitely blur the lines. Maybe I maybe I can just add this. Um, we find and and we we serve a lot of clients with with BE um, strategies and implementing all these legal documents that you need to build up in order to score your points that we were talking about. And we we often find that that companies are compliant um, without knowing to mm -hmm. a large extent that they mm -hmm. are. Um, you you send your staff on training. You mentor many of your staff. You mentor many other people in your industries, but you don't keep a record, mm. which means you're throwing your points to the wind. Um, and that's by, by, by just taking it back to the scorecard, that's skills development. Mm. Uh, many times you, you feel out of the goodness of your heart to donate that little bit of money to a charitable organization. And if you donate it to the right organization that gives you a BE certificate um, or a, a document proving your, your spend there, then you can score those points. Um, and similarly, with, with many of the other structures, some of the things are, are happening in the normal case, in the normal course of business every day, but purely because structures, systems, processes, and documents are not in place, um, the points are, are being thrown to the wind. This for sounds lack like of a, a lot of paperwork, though. Unfortunately, it is, especially uh, the larger the company, um, then then it, it becomes pretty much, I, I like to compare it always to an audit. You need to keep your documents, then the verification agent then ultimately acts as the auditor, and they make sure that you haven't cheated on any points, and they make sure that, that the score or the rating you get at the end of the day is authentic. So that's why it's so important, and if you implement it slowly, and, and whoever staff member, or whichever staff member is responsible for a certain function already inherent to the business, adding one system and some paperwork to it um, is a bit of a painful exercise when you start doing it. But once the, the ball is rolling, it, it really, it works really well. And of course, later on, as the business grows, so does your board and your board starts having subcommittees around various issues like remuneration strategies within the business and policies surrounding that and how you reward your staff for performance on board level and on other managerial and, and junior level. So some of these functions become almost a natural flow of things.
My thanks once again this evening to attorney Karen McKenzie. She's a director at Herald Gee Attorneys and heads up the Pension Law Department. And attorney Nicolene Skuman-Lowe. She's a director of Skuman Chaka Attorneys, Conveyances and Notaries Public. And they've been my guests on tonight's edition of the Law Report programme. The Law Report is on the air on SAFM every Monday evening between 9 and 10. And just a reminder that there's a list of available documents on the Facebook page, Law on SAFM. If you'd like any of them, post a message on Facebook. But please do remember to include your email address. Or if you don't have access to Facebook, email me on law at safm.co.za and I'll send you a copy of the list and then you can choose what you'd like. And I have added to that list information on divorce and pension funds, as well as information on the new retirement reforms. And I'll be back with you again tomorrow evening just after nine with Health Matters, so join me then. Well, it's time now for some nighttime music.